All right, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 16. We've been in John for a while now. We're working our way through the text kind of section by section and uh, trying to explain the text in its context. And we believe that when we do that, of course, we get to hear from God and we want to lean in uh, and listen when God speaks. Uh, If you were to survey some of the greatest farewell speeches throughout history delivered by men and women who, who knew that they would soon die, you'll find that there's some really pretty incredible uh, stuff out there. From the sports world, for example, you have Lou Gehrig's final goodbye at home plate of Yankee Stadium. Uh, not very long after he uh, was informed that he would soon die because of a, uh, a disease, an incurable disease that was slowly shutting down his organs. From the civil rights movement of the late 1960s, we have Dr. Martin Luther King's masterpiece, I've been to the mountaintop speech delivered uh, in nearby Memphis, Tennessee. And if you go way back, if you go hundreds of years back, even to the second century, when countless Christians were being martyred because of their faith in Christ, paraded out into the arenas to be killed in, in really gruesome ways, we read some poignant and very powerful words. For example, in AD 155, Polycarp, who was actually a disciple of uh, the very John that we've been studying, He was condemned to die for his faith in Christ, but he was given an opportunity. He said, if you will deny Christ, you can live. Uh, He refused to do so, so the Roman uh, proconsul threatened to send out the lions, which did not frighten uh, Polycarp. Instead, the proconsul decided to nail Polycarp to a stake and be burned. But Polycarp said, look, you don't even need to nail me down. I will stand there and I will die In the fire, he said, 86 years I have served Christ and he has not once hurt me. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? Let me alone, I pray you, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the fire unmoved without the security you desire from the nails. So that was in the second century. You move forward a little less than 200 years in the early fourth century. There was Eulita, who was a young Christian uh, widow who fled from uh, Iconium to Tarsus with her three-year-old son, uh, Syracuse. And she, too, was given this ultimatum or this opportunity, rather, if you will deny Christ, if you will reject Jesus, then you can live. However, uh, she refused to reject Jesus, so she was beaten severely. While the emperor, Alexander, actually held her three-year-old son, And forced him to watch this beating. When the little boy scratched the emperor's face, he threw the boy down the steps of the tribunal where the boy died immediately. Even after seeing her son killed, moments before she herself would be beheaded, Eulita said, We women receive not only flesh from men, but we are bone of their bone, and therefore ought to be as strong and constant as men in Christ's cause. I am a Christian. I will not offer sacrifices to demons by denying my Savior. So wherever we turn in history, we see there are some incredible farewell speeches by those who knew they were going to die. And, of course, the context for those speeches is different. I mean, sometimes the people knew they were going to die because of disease that had sort of ravaged their bodies. And at other times, they knew they were going to die because of persecution. So... There are a lot of differences in terms of the context and the actual words, but there's one thing that's similar about all these speeches, and that is when the person who made the speech died, 
he or she was never heard from or seen again. Now, such is not the case with the farewell discourse of Jesus Christ that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. In John chapters 14 through 17, we see Jesus basically saying goodbye to his disciples, and he's letting them know a number of things, of course, that will grieve them, that will hurt them, that will uh, lead them to great sorrow. But he would comfort his disciples by reminding them how much he loves them. He reminds them of, of who they are in him. Uh, he reminds them that he's actually going to come back for them. And he tells them that when he leaves them, he will really impart to them three, what we're calling parting gifts. The first would be the Holy Spirit, which we looked at two weeks ago, which would convict the world of sin, which would strengthen the faith of believers. Uh, the second uh, sort of parting gift would be this incredible joy that would be belong to those who are in Christ. And then the third, we looked at that last week, and then the third parting gift, we might say, was this transcendent peace that Jesus says will be in him for those who belong to him. So let's look at that, John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. The word of the Lord reads this way. I have, seen these th- I have said these things to you in figures of speech. This is Jesus talking. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So throughout his time with the disciples, there's, there's much that Jesus has made clear to them. Uh, you know, he's told them that he's leaving them, which they know that means he's going to soon die. This is why Peter would sort of pipe up and say, no, I'll die for you instead. Uh, he's told them that Uh, He would return for them, that they would see him again, that he would be sending them out into a hostile world. So so much of this is very sort of straightforward stuff. But there's also much that Jesus has said to them in veiled terms, what he calls figures of speech, like where specifically he would be going and and what the Father would be like where he would go and, and when he would return for them and who it was that he would send them. So there's much that he hasn't been that clear about. But here he says, look, in a little while, don't worry, I'm going to stop using figures of speech and I'm going to talk to you very plainly. And one of the benefits of his departure, as he said, as we saw a moment ago, would be that he would leave with his disciples. In him, they would have a supernatural peace. But how would that work? And what what would be the reason for that peace? Well, Jesus will give two reasons that we're going to see uh, this morning. In this passage, look again with me uh, at verses 26 uh, and 27. Um, actually, let's see. That's not what I was looking for. Um, I'm sorry, it is what I'm looking for. I was on the wrong page here. 
uh, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask uh, the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, Jesus wants his disciples to know, and, and us by extension, of course, that God the Father loves them intensely. In other words, it's not as though Jesus has to persuade the Father to love his children. No, the Father loves his children with actually a fierce love, and he always has. Here, here's the first point I want to make this morning. Really, this is the first reason for peace that Jesus would give. God's love for his children is anchored in his unchanging character. Therefore, his love for us will always remain intense and personal. It's, it's really that recognition that God's love for us is unchanging because it's anchored in his, the, the eternal reality of his unchanging character. It's that recognition that brings peace to the followers of Jesus. But why would the disciples have needed to know this, that God's love for them is unchanging? Why would they, why would they need to know that God's love for them burns with this sort of white-hot fierceness? For two reasons, really, one theological and one practical. Theologically, the disciples were accustomed to thinking about God and, and hearing about God primarily in terms of His sovereignty, His majesty, His power, His holiness, and His transcendence. If you go back and you read the, the prayers of the Old Testament saints, you will see that, that there's a, a real clear emphasis on the transcendence of God and the power of God. Now, this is, the, of course, the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament is what the, what the disciples of Jesus had, and so they were familiar with this. It's there that we read about the strong right arm of God, the thunderous voice of God, and the earth as God's footstool, and so on. Now, was love and faithfulness on display through the Old Testament? Of course it was, absolutely. But the emphasis was on the power and glory of God. And so this is why, by the way, when Jesus instructs his disciples to pray out to God and call him Abba, Father, it was such a revolutionary thing that we don't really fully grasp. They just weren't accustomed to thinking about God and praying to God with that level of intimacy. I mean, again, it's not as though I'm not saying that in the Old Testament we don't see grace and mercy and love and faithfulness. Of course we do. But the image that we see most is of this powerful God, this incredible God who is transcendent. He's above our figuring out. And so the first century followers of Jesus, again, that they're just not used to theologically thinking about God in those terms. They would not have, their first thought about God, about God would not have been this intense love of the Father. There were also, of course, practical difficulties in, in, in understanding and recognizing the love of God because they recognized, of course, their own sinfulness. And they knew very well their own faithlessness. In fact, Jesus has just told them that in, in his darkest hour, they're going to leave him. And so they're aware of this. They know they haven't been faithful. They know that they're all over the map. They know they've been consumed with doubt and fear and so on. And so for sure, they're asking themselves the question, themselves the question could God really love me with the way that I've been so unsure in my devotion to him? So the disciples needed to hear about the love of the Father, for, again, for those two reasons, theological and practical. And I think for us, really, it's the same reasons that we need to be reassured. Theologically, 
for us, we might easily conclude as we talk about and sing about this, this beautiful doctrine of the atonement, that is, Christ satisfying the wrath of a holy God for us, we think about the atonement, sometimes we may think, well, yeah, of course Jesus really, really loves me, but the Father, like, I'm not really sure. Maybe He's warming up to us. Maybe He still has a beef with us. Like, we're not really sure that He loves in that way when we talk about the atonement. In fact, one theologian writes, God the Father is angry with sin. And the classic doctrines of the atonement building on the deep theology of Paul have correctly made this point but carried one step too far. These deep theologies can unintentionally leave some Christians with the horrible impression of a father who does not love the sinner as much as the son does. So there is that theological reason. But I think really, if we're really going to be honest with ourselves, the, the reason we, we don't always receive or grasp or understand the love of the father is practical as well. In other words, it often seems very difficult to believe that God would love us when we think about, again, just our fickle devotion to Him and all the other things that we allow to captivate and capture our hearts. We think, I don't know, I mean, could God really love me that way? Could God really love me with that intensity? Have you ever heard of this guy on the radio, Steve Brown? I'm not sure. He has a 90-second uh, radio segment. I'm not sure if it's carried in this area, but um, he's, he's got a super deep voice. He's 80 years old, and, and he's been a pastor for some 52 years or whatever. Well, he has a segment on the radio that always ends with this phrase, you think about that. And it's, a, it's, a great, it's about grace and the love of God. And he said that, and I remember hearing, hearing him say that, so he's 80 years old. He said, I've spent... The, the last two decades of my life trying to convince Christians that God is not mad at them. But he said, you wouldn't believe the sort of pushback I get. People are offended by that. They want to believe on some level that, that God just can't really love the way that the Scriptures teach. Now, now, occasionally someone will say to me, I've never doubted God's love for me. And I guess it could be, it could be, that by His Spirit, God has assured someone of, He has sort of divinely enabled someone to really grasp the depth of God's love for him. But more often, I think it's probably because a person who says this, I've never doubted, I've never struggled with the fact that God would love me. More often, I think it's probably because that person doesn't really understand his or her own sinfulness her own sinfulness, the darkness of the human heart, over and against the holiness of God. I was talking about this one time in a sermon, and, and, and I, I quoted one of the reformers who said, the most difficult thing for human beings to do is actually believe that God loves them. And uh, the very next morning, I got a scathing email from a man who said he had never questioned God's love and was offended at the very thought of it, that I would suggest it. But the more that I read his message, the more that it seemed like that this guy thought that he actually deserved to be loved by God more than anybody else. I mean, he just had that high of a view of himself. And it almost, it almost appeared to me that he felt like that he, you know, he was, above all people, he really should be loved by God because of his piety and his obedience and so on. But here's the interesting thing. He just happened to be 
one of the most critical, harshly critical people in the church. He was known as such. He was a guy whose path you didn't really want to cross because he typically had a a sort of condemning posture. And so I think he may have thought that he really understood God's love, but I, I don't think he did because he failed to grasp how incredible it is that God should love us in this way. If we understand God's holiness and and our sinfulness, we should be constantly astounded that God would love us, that the Father would love us with this sort of intensity. But He does, Jesus says, because of His character and not because of His goodness. I think what we tend to believe, and and I fall prey to this all the time, we tend to do, what we tend to do is we measure God's love for us sort of in direct proportion to our obedience. So we have a day, you know, you have one of those days, you just get up and you're on fire for the Lord and maybe you tell somebody about Jesus and you spend time in the Word and, and, you, and you're doing just, you're having a really great day and you think, oh God, He must really love me now. But you have one of those days when you fall prey to sinful anger and lust and impatience and self-centeredness, and rudeness, and all those things. You think, think, God has to love me less. It tends to be the way that we do. We have this equation in our mind that that God's love for us is is directly related to, it's in direct proportion to our obedience to Him. Uh, There was a a great Russian writer in the 19th century, Leo uh, Tolstoy. Some of you have probably read his works. Uh, He penned some of the best-known novels in history, like Anna Karenina, and War and Peace, and uh, if you've ever seen pictures of him, he's, he has this very long beard, this long gray beard that goes down to his waist. Uh, makes Pastor Brandon's beard look like a baby beard. It's like this big, huge beard. And, um, and so he's, he was this well-known novelist, and, and in his late 40s, he had this sort of moral crisis. And he realized that things were not right in his life, and, and, and he needed to do something different. And he started reading, and where he started reading was with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And what he concluded from the Sermon on the Mount was that God's love is dependent upon my perfection. And so he set out in this unbelievable way to just be as absolutely perfect as possible. When Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Tolstoy took that to mean if you try hard enough, you can reach perfection. And he determined, Tolstoy determined to try hard, as hard as he could in fact. And he reached, you know, if we're being honest, he reached a level of unparalleled piety. He was a man who, uh, who was committed to the most rigid uh, outward obedience. He sacrificed just about everything he had for the good of others. He was willing to do anything to help anyone out. But he was miserable inside. I talk about peace. Here's a man who had none. One of his biographers said Tolstoy was the most internally vexed man that he'd ever known. When Tolstoy was approaching 80 years of age, his wife Sonia wrote a pretty haunting description. She said, There is so little genuine warmth about him. His kindness does not come from his heart, but merely from his principles. His biographies will tell of how he helped the laborers to carry buckets of water, but no one will ever know that he never gave his wife a rest and never in all these 32 years gave his child a drink of water or spent five minutes by his bedside to give me a chance to rest a little bit from my labors? Now, obviously, that's one side of the story, but 
This is the way it works for those who see God's love as something that must be earned and something that must be preserved by our obedience. It's an empty set, and it leads to a miserable life. For those who believe, you know what, if I, if, if I can just do enough, if I can serve enough, give enough, obey enough, then God will love me. It leads to misery. The reality is God's love is so incredible, it's so unwavering, that on your worst day, on your least obedient day, the day, again, when you have your biggest failure, if you are in Christ, God loves you the exact same as He does on your very best day. Not long ago, not too long ago, I spoke at a Christian school to a bunch of third through fifth graders, and uh, the teacher pulled me aside before I got there and said, hey, which was actually really helpful because this is not my normal audience. She pulled me aside and said, hey, it would be best off if you just have one theme, just one thing that you want to communicate to the students. And again, that was very beneficial. So I determined that I, what I wanted to let these kids know was if they had put their faith in Jesus, that God love, God's love for them would never change. If they had a bad day when they got their name on the board or they got kicked out of class or whatever it was, God's love for them would not change, not change at all. And if they got great grades or horrible grades, whatever it was, that His love for them was grounded in His, in his very being, not their performance. Again, on their very best days and on their very worst days, they were beloved children of God. But one kid really took it to heart. He was so excited about that, he wrote me a note that said this, Dear Pastor John, I pray for the fact that you teach people the gospel Thanks for telling me how just because I get an F in class, I'm still a child of God. And I have to tell you, the teacher was not really pleased with me. I, 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 she was looking at me like, don't tell my kids that they can get bad grades and be loved for God. I mean, she was not really saying that, but it, it, was, it, was so, it was so encouraging to me to see the way that these third through fifth graders, they really resonate with this idea that God's love for them was constant. Here's how, and I love this, here's how 20th century Princeton theologian Gerhardus Voss explains it. What God brings into this union with His children, we can only designate as the highest and purest type of devotion. Now think about that. It is named love for this very reason, that God puts into it His heart and soul and mind and strength. It is something quite extraordinary, something well nigh inconceivable, a supreme wonder in a land of wonders. Love is to God, is to Him, the highest form of the spiritual embrace of person by person. To ascribe love to God in connection with a creature is at the farthest removed from being a figure of speech. It means that in the most literal sense, He concentrates all the light and warmth of His affection, all the prodigious wealth of His resources, His endless capacity of delight, upon the heart-to-heart -heart union between the redeemed and himself. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, think about this. If you are in Christ, God is wholly devoted to you. He is embracing you with an endless embrace. He, is, he has poured out his affection on you. This means everything, doesn't it? In fact, this is why Paul would say, if God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't mean that other people won't be against us. We know they will. And maybe right now you have someone in your life who is against you. And maybe it's someone that you love. Maybe it's someone 
in your own family, and they just rail against you. Whatever you do is wrong. doesn't mean that we won't have people against us. We certainly will. But it does mean that if we are loved by God, we have everything we need. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, again, they're confused, they're beleaguered, they're exhausted, they're afraid. They're worried. They're filled with great sorrow. We saw last week what he's saying is, look, it's not just me that loves you. The Father loves you. And the Father has concentrated on you all the light and warmth of his affection. From eternity past and for all eternity future, God has loved you and will love you. If you are in me, he says. His love for his children is not based on their performance or anything they can do or can't do. It is rooted in his unchanging character. But if that's the case, then why would Jesus say what he does in verse 27? For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, is Jesus saying to his disciples that the love of God is, is merited by their love for Him. We know that can't be the case because the overall witness of Scripture is very clear that we love God because He first loved us. In fact, we're only able to love God because He has chosen us and granted to us new life. What Jesus is talking about here is actually the genuineness of their faith in Him. While others have failed to receive Jesus, and we've seen that the accounts as we've gone through the gospel, they turn from Jesus. The disciples have believed that Jesus is the one God sent and therefore have loved him. But even that ability to love was enabled by a prior love that God has demonstrated toward them. So again, the reason that this transcendent peace that Jesus says the disciples and we can have is in part because of the unchanging love of the Father for his own. Now there's another reason. Look at verses 32 through 33 again. Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now it's difficult to imagine, I think, how the disciples would have taken this news. Because remember, some of them, Peter in particular, some of them have pledged their undying loyalty to Jesus. And Peter, in fact, has said at one point, look, even if everybody else rejects you, I'm not going to reject you. You can trust me. So it's, it's, it's difficult to think, to, to really fathom how the disciples would have received this news that they're going to abandon him in his darkest hour and scatter from him. Again, they, would, they probably would have been particularly confused by verse, what he says in verse 33. I have said these things to you that... In me you may have peace. Well, what are these things that Jesus said? Well, one of, the, one of the things that he says is that they will actually abandon him. So they have to be thinking, like, how can I have peace from this? But the phrase, these things, also includes everything that Jesus has said to them in this farewell discourse. Namely, that he loves them, that the Father loves them with an intense love, that Jesus is going to prepare a place for them. He's coming back and he will receive them. And in verse 33, again, Jesus adds another reason for hope. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I 
have overcome the world. Notice he doesn't say, he doesn't call them overcomers. He doesn't say you will overcome. He says, I have overcome the world. In other words, in the same way that it won't be their goodness or ability that earns for them the love of the Father, it won't be their ability or their accomplishments that usher in God's kingdom. Even as they anticipate this cruel reception from the world, and one of our elders, John Kirkpatrick, explained this beautifully, how the world will, they will reject us as Christ followers. Even as the disciples of Jesus anticipate this, this violent reception from the world, and they look to the suffering they will go through, Jesus again takes their eyes off of themselves. He redirects them to him. What he says, in essence, is you can have peace. You can have courage because victory doesn't depend on you. I have overcome the world. Here's our second point, the second reason for peace. God is moving history toward a designed end, the consummation of his kingdom on earth, and nothing or no one can stop God's plan. We talked a lot about the kingdom in the earlier chapters of John's gospel, and, um, and I won't go back and, and rehash everything we said then, but to summarize it, the kingdom of God, we talk about the kingdom, it is both a real literal place and it's also a spiritual reign. And so maybe the best way I've heard it explained, I guess the most succinctly is this, the kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. So one day the living God will come to the earth to live with his people on a new earth. It's actually going to be the same earth, but kind of refurbished, refined by fire. And the hope of the Christian is not that we'll sort of float around in heaven one day singing, this is amazing grace, not there's anything wrong with that song necessarily, but that one day we will actually be with our King Jesus on a new earth, a refined earth, doing earthly things. So it's not just about floating around and playing harps and, and singing. It's about doing earthly things on a new earth. Eating and drinking and writing music and, and singing and dancing and, and doing all the things that, that we do as earthly creatures. Now we talk a lot about the fact that there won't be any death, sickness, or dying there or any pain there. And praise God for that. That's really good news. But just as good as the reality that there won't be any sin on the new earth. No envy. No hatred. No interpersonal conflict. Won't that be nice? No hurt feelings, no sadness, no wondering, what did he really mean by that? Why did she say that? No jealousy, no looking at someone else and, and thinking, man, I really wish I had his hair. This is a wild hypothetical. <laughs> no depression, no anxiety. No violence against women, no child abuse, no bigotry toward those of a different skin color, no words we wish we could take back, no regrets at all. This is the way it will be on the new earth when Christ's kingdom is fully realized. And as Jesus sends his disciples out into this hostile world, he says, yes, you are going to suffer and people are going to hate you and people are going to violently receive you or not receive you. He wants them to know that even though the world will hate them, His kingdom will come. The world may overcome them, the disciples, and in fact it did. Most of the eleven died in cruel, murderous ways. The world may overcome them, but Jesus has overcome 
the world. His death and resurrection signaled the beginning of the end. Not even death could stop God's plan. God would be glorified in the conquering of death, raising up His Son. And by His Son's death, He made forgiveness possible. A reconciled relationship with the, with the true living God who created the world. And by His resurrection, God would signal to the world that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. Now here's a, another beautiful part of this, which I find so encouraging. Not only could nothing or no one stop God's plan of moving history toward God's design end, but, get this, nothing or no one could prevent Jesus' disciples from being part of that kingdom, not even themselves, not even themselves, not even their own faithlessness. Notice that Jesus implores them to have peace immediately after he tells them that they will scatter and leave him. Why does he do that? Well, according to the great New Testament scholar Leon Morris, here's why. When they had all forsaken Jesus, they might well feel so ashamed that they would remain uneasy whenever they thought of him in the future. But he predicted their desertion in this very saying in which he assured them of the peace he would give them. He loved them for what they were and despite their shortcomings. See, what Jesus also wants us to know is the certainty of our faith does not rest on us, but rests in the one that we believed in. This peace that Jesus talks about, it's not some sort of blind optimism. It's not some, some just wishful thinking. It's not what the Stoics referred to as serenity, this idea that, no, it's, it's all going to work out in the end. But in the recognition that the one who loves us will keep us till the end. So let me summarize this and wrap it up this way as we begin to prepare for the Lord's table. God has sent us on a mission. To be a Christian is to live on mission. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are on mission. As we said last week, again, it, it, it's to live as a Christian is to be on this gospel-advancing mission. But it won't be our efforts, it won't be our determination, it won't be our hard work that brings anyone to faith in Christ or surely ushers in Christ's kingdom. Success does not depend on us. Jesus will do the work. In fact, by His death and resurrection, He has demonstrated His power to make all things new. And again, to this group of beleaguered disciples, Jesus wants them to know, you're going to receive, you're going to encounter opposition, but it won't be your ability that brings it about. I have overcome. It won't be our dogged determination that brings about the kingdom or brings anyone to Christ. And furthermore, it won't even be our determination that keeps us in Christ. To this group of disciples, immediately after Jesus tells them they will commit the most heinous betrayal against him possible, leaving Jesus at his darkest hour. Jesus says, be of good courage. Live with peace. Jesus says, because he will keep those who are his. It won't be their faithfulness that matters most, but his. The reality is, here's the reality. We are constantly inclined to love other things more than we love God. Those lesser loves that we're going to sing about in just a moment, they capture our hearts and they thrill us for a little while. But again, 
as we're going to sing about, the one who freed us from our prison of sin and spiritual death, the one who spread a table for us to feast while we were yet enemies, the one who called us to be children while we were orphans, the one who took our place and received the punishment for our crimes, he will keep us to the end. He has overcome, and we are the eternal beneficiaries of his victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may I be the first to confess this morning that my heart is so easily thrilled by lesser loves. My devotion can wax and wane just in one 24-hour period. Father, what comforting news it is to know that your love is steadfast, unchanging, white-hot, intense, because your love is anchored in the eternal reality of your character, not in my ups and downs. And Father, as we sing by way of confession now that we have loved other things. We do love other things more than you. Help us also to remember and to find great confidence and hope in your forgiving grace. Cause it to be so in Christ's name.